0: I'm Andy Dalton. I am not a pastor here at Mercy Road, as Josh said. I'm a husband. I'm a father of two high school girls here in Carmel. I have a job job, just like anybody else in this room. I work a full-time day job in the technology industry here in Indianapolis. And on the side, I'm a cross-country coach at Carmel High School. I did spend the first number of years of my professional career in full-time ministry with college students. But really beyond that, I am here because I am one of you. I am a member of Mercy Road, and I'm ecstatic about the opportunity to do what all of us should want to do, and that's to be able to use the gifts and abilities that the Lord has given me to serve the church. And that's all I'm going to do this morning. We're going to open up the Word together, we're going to look at a passage, and I'm hopefully going to make it easier to understand and easier to apply to our lives this morning. This morning, we're going to talk about a topic called BFF. Has anybody ever heard of BFF? All right. So best friends forever. My daughter's after the service. You've heard of it? All right. My daughter's after the service. I'm sure are going to tell me, dad, that's kind of on its way out. Quit using BFF. All right. But to me, that's like a cool term I can actually use. It's short for best friends forever. What I don't get about BFF and best friends forever is like in my days, if you had a best friend, it was a best friend friend right and that's why you called it best friends forever today it's like they have a new best friend every week have you ever noticed that you check their like their social media instagram posts or whatever and either my daughters go through friends like there's no tomorrow or you are allowed actually to call multiple people your best friends now uh the whole word best and the superlative that's with it doesn't make sense anymore but i did have a best friend in sixth grade i met scott wilson all right some people call him willie i call him willie dog all right, in sixth grade, my family moved to Greenwood, Indiana. This is Scott and I in high school, right? Uh, in sixth grade, I moved to Greenwood, Indiana, and Scott and I immediately became best friends because we were the only two boys in our class that were still four foot six and 85 pounds dripping wet, right? And we had to live through those horrible, awkward middle school years that no one wants to go back to, right? Except for Eric. Um, of living through just the awkwardness of trying to figure out how do you get up the nerve to ask a girl to the eighth grade dance when everyone in your class is at least six inches taller than you? Right? How do you do all the things as far as sports and all that kind of stuff? And so we did everything together. We played sports together, we did activities together, we did it through uh, middle school and high school. In fact, Every sport we played, we did it together, whether we were on the, you know, actual school team or intramurals or whatever. And like best friends, we competed at everything. I don't know if you guys have ever done that with your best friend, but we're very competitive, whether it was sports or outside, to the point where we would, like, keep track of who's the better runner, who's the better basketball player, who's the better ping pong player. We'd have, like, this little sheet, which we would keep track of. Who's the better pool player? The silliest sports you can think of, right? We wanted to know who was better at all these. And we would get in arguments everywhere we went about anything. One summer, we were mowing yards in the neighborhood together, and we'd drive up in my Jeep with two lawnmowers in the back and the weed eater and that kind of thing, and we'd pull up to the yard, and as we're pulling up to the yard, we literally get in an argument about whose car stereo was better. Now, mind you, both of our cars were pieces of junk, right? They were high school cars, they were pieces of junk, so were the stereos. But mine was better because (laughs) my speakers were so much bigger than the speakers in his car and so therefore my car could put out more volume and it was a better stereo. Now his car, he thought his stereo was better because his stereo and the equilibrium and all this little power electronic stuff was better than mine, right? So we fought and argued to the point where in the front yard of this customer that we were supposed to mow the yard, we got to the point where we threw punches and started wrestling in the front yard before we started mowing, right? Yeah, it was embarrassing. But my stereo is still better. And when he watches this online later, he'll remember that point. So we went on, we graduated high school, went to the same university, Purdue University, ended up in the same fraternity house in different pledge classes, but the same fraternity houses, went through for our college years together. This is actually not the college years, but a couple years ago. Uh, we're a little bit older at this point. Put a little bit more meat on our bones than the middle school days. Um, graduated from college. Be, went, you know, we're we're in each other's weddings. We're best men in each other's weddings. So you know how this goes. We've just been best friends for a number of years. And the story continues. So much so that even after the marriage days and the start having kids days we continued to do some of the same events and activities we both loved endurance sports and we started to love doing triathlons and in fact two and a half years ago when i finished my first ironman triathlon in madison wisconsin willie was the one guy who showed up in the middle of the race to surprise me uh, during the middle of the ironman triathlon and then here's willie with my family after the iron after i completed it um, and cheer me through for the next five or six boring hours as you, you know, watch this long, long race, and he was there for me, right? Anyway, we were such good friends that we thought it was the coolest thing in high school when we finally found out and put two and two together that my name is Andrew Scott Dalton. His name is Scott Andrew Wilson. Whoa, we thought that was cool, right? First and middle names, same, but swapped. So we did what most crazy, silly high schoolers did. We thought that was a way bigger deal than it was. And we made a pact. And we made a pact that was when we would get older and get married and have kids, we would name our first born son after each other doing the reverse order. So he would name his son Andrew Scott and I would name my son Scott Andrew, right? Well, the problem was our to-be wives weren't there for that conversation in high school. (laughs) And so when we told them about this plan of ours down the road, they weren't as excited about it as we were. I don't know why. But anyway, a couple of years go forward. Scott starts having kids, and his oldest is a girl, and his second is a boy, and he names him Andrew, right? And they go, by Drew, right? Which is really cool. He doesn't actually do Drew, Andrew Scott, so Julie got a little bit of work in there. But anyway, he still got Andrew through and calls him Drew. And then they had another boy. We started having kids, and my oldest is Maddie. We have a girl, then we have another girl, Abby. And then after that, Kristen's like, I'm done, right? And I'm like, you know how that works. Well, I've got this packed. <laughs> and we need to keep having more kids. Yeah, you, you know who won that one. So I didn't uphold my end of the bargain with Willie. But about six years ago, I called Willie up on the, on the phone, and I started talking to him. I said, look, do you remember that time in high school when we made that pact with each other about the first names and our son, he stops me, and starts yelling, he's like, you're having another kid, no way. At this age, you're having another kid and you're gonna name him Scott. I'm like, no, no, no. We're done having kids, we're not doing that, but I can at least give you second best. And so last night, my family and I went out and got a new dog, this is the (laughs) picture, and we have named this dog Wilson. So he doesn't get my oldest boy, but we did name our dog after him, right? And this is Willie Dog. Uh, or Wilson, or whatever. This is more today. It's not a puppy. They want to throw a puppy picture up there. You guys will be distracted all night, all uh, morning. So anyway, best friends. Some of you guys have had best friends. Some of you have had close friends and many best friends. This morning, what we're going to do is we're going to pick out a passage of scripture where Jesus tells us a little bit of instruction on how to be a BFF, how to be a best friend. And then all we're going to do is unpack that, and ask the question, what does that mean to us and how can we apply it to our lives? So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter two. If you can pull it on your phone, you can grab a Bible in front of you if you'd like to in the seat in front of you or if not, we will have the words on the screen of the scripture passage next to me as I kinda go through Mark chapter two. As you're finding it, let me give you a 30 second background. Mark is one of the writers of the four Gospels in the Bible. Four Gospels are kinda like the four eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. What's fun about the four Gospels is all of the different writers had their own style. Mark was known to have a style that was much more brief and short and action-oriented. He was to the point. He didn't do all the background stuff. And some of his stories didn't flow well together because he just wanted to get to the next action step. In fact, if you've ever wondered about a book of the Bible to start reading, Mark's a great place to start. It's easy, it's easy to grab a hold of, and it's fun and exciting to read. But anyway, so he stays true to himself, and in chapter one, completely skips over Mary and Joseph and Christmas story and the life of Jesus. None of that stuff happens in, the Mark, in Mark. He jumps right into Jesus is 30 years old, and he's doing ministry. And he's walking around, and he's preaching, and he's teaching, and he's healing people. He's making the lame walk and the blind see, and he's casting demons out of people. But because of that, Jesus, by this point in time, has become very, very popular. Sometimes for the right reasons, sometimes for the wrong reasons. But he's basically become a traveling circus, a show. You can go watch this guy, and he'll throw demons out of people and throw them into pigs, and the pigs will go run into the water and those kind of things. We got to go see this. Or he heals people, and we got to get this person healed. And so, wherever Jesus went, people started showing up and following. And this was before the days of social media. The word would just get out wherever he went, and the crowds would always follow. And that's where we're starting from in Mark chapter 2, verse 1, if you read with me here. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. And they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. So let me paint a picture here. What Jesus has done is he's, he's out doing his thing. He comes back to Capernaum. He's most likely in Peter's house, just a small house. And he has set up shop there, and he's going to start teaching. And people have heard. The word has spread. It's gotten out, and everybody somehow has found out. It just does that, right? And the house is completely packed with people standing. It's like one of the worst bars you've ever been in, right, where you're just shoulder to shoulder, and there's people on the floor. There's people everywhere. Out the windows, people are probably sitting in the windowsills, Out the front door, because they want to get a picture. They want to see, they want to hear what's going on inside this house. They just can't wait to see, I don't want to miss the show. Jesus is back in town. And that's kind of the picture we have. And he's got all these people gathered around, and he's going to start to teach them. And let's see what he has to say. Starting in verse 3. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. And since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd... They made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. So what's happening here? We've got this paralyzed man, like a paralytic, right? We don't know how paralyzed. At the very least, he's paralyzed from the waist down. And life consisted for him of basically sitting on a mat, kind of like a doormat or a small rug, most of his life. And the only way he would get around is if he had people to pick up the four corners of that mat and walk him to wherever he needed to go and put him there. So he's got four buddies. They hear the same word, the same story that everyone else does, that Jesus is back in town. And they think to themselves, I don't know who this Jesus character is, but I have heard he can heal people. And he does it everywhere he goes. We have got to get him to Jesus. So they pick him up on the mat and they walk him to the house and they're starting to come into the house and they realize the reality of what's in front of them which is the house is completely packed. Out the doors, out the windows, there is no possible way that we can get our friend in to see Jesus. So, what do they do? They just turn around and go back? No, they come up with plan B. And plan B is this, they're gonna pick up their friend on the mat, they're gonna carry him up the side of the house carry him up to the top of the roof, and lower him down in front of Jesus. Now, let me explain how houses were back then. Unlike today, where we've got houses that are pitched for, elements of the, you know, for the elements and the weather and that kind of thing. With, Well, yeah, there you go. They were flat. He's helping me. And they were, the reason why they're flat is because it would get so warm in the summer months. This was before AC. This was before electrical fans that the only place they could find to sleep and get any sort of breeze would be to walk up the side of the house on the steps, walk to the flat roof, and sleep up there, all right? The reason why I know what these houses are like is because for a few years of my life, my family actually lived in a house like this in Arizona. My parents were from Arizona. We lived in an old farmhouse in an orange grove in Arizona uh, for a couple years, and we live in a house with a flat top roof. And the reason why I remember this house so well was because of a very odd story that happened while we we're there. If my father would hear, he would tell the story better than I, and he would embellish it better than I will. But as most stories, I'll do my best. So we're walking out of the farmhouse. I don't know where we're going. Dad, mom, five little kids. The youngest one is an infant. And we're heading off somewhere. Dad walks out the front door of this farmhouse, looks to his left, and there is a huge snake sticking his head Out the bottom of the gutter, right? Snakes in Arizona are a little larger than snakes in Indiana, if you don't know that. This snake was so large, and this is where maybe some of the embellishment comes from, that the head would stick out the bottom of the gutter and the tail was out the top of the gutter, right? Which means it's about a 10-foot long snake, which isn't out of the question in Arizona. I don't know if the tail actually stuck out the top, but very well could have, all right? And so dad goes... One, he's deathly afraid of snakes, like many of you. Jumps back in the house, doesn't know what to do, doesn't know how to get his family out the door because he sure can't take us past this snake. So he devises a plan, and this is his plan. He's going he's to go out the back door, pick up a bunch of huge boulders and rocks, the largest he can carry. He's going to walk up the side of the house, up to the roof, and put them down. And then what he's going to do, he's going to scare the snake out of the gutter which he does with a shovel. And he takes a shovel and starts banging it on the gutter and scares this huge snake out of the gutter out into the yard. And then what he's going to do is he's going to drop, he's going to go to the edge of the thing and he's going to drop boulders right on the snake. And he's going to crush it. And that's how he's going to kill out. You know how well that goes, right? So the problem being, any, the snake went too far out into the yard. And so any boulder or rock that was big enough to actually do any damage to the snake, he couldn't get it there. He couldn't throw it out far enough. The ones he could get to the snake would either bounce off or he would miss. This is a big snake, right? And so he doesn't know what to do. He's still gotta kill the snake, can't get us out, so he comes up with plan B. Plan B is this, he yells down through the window to mom and says, hey Kathleen, come around back, come around to the front of the house and you need to shoo the snake (laughs) towards the house. Yeah, you ladies in the room know how well that went over, right? she is not going out into the yard and scaring the snake closer to the house right that never happened to make a long story short he grabbed the shovel and took care of the snake eventually got up the nerve to do so right but that's how i know what this flat top house looks like that's all it was the story meant nothing it was just a funny story about a flat top house <laughs> now these friends get to the flat top And then they've got to figure out how to get their buddies still to Jesus. Now, roofs back then weren't made of shingles and plywood. They were made of just layers upon layers of like thatch and straw and clay and mud, hard packed together, hard enough that you would keep the elements out when it rained or whatever it might be to the point. So they got up there and they spent, I don't know how long, clawing through with their hands and their fingers to make a hole big enough in the roof of the house so that they could lower their friend down on a mat in front of Jesus right? And they do so in this verse. And as they lower him in front of Jesus, you can only imagine, like if I was sitting here and for this whole time when we're giving this talk, there is amazing amount of commotion going on up here, right? And someone's digging a hole through the roof. You know how disturbing that would be and distracting? I'd be so mad by the time they actually came through and I figured out what was going on that, you know, it probably wouldn't have said what Jesus did. And you guys would be completely distracted, not listening or whatever, because Jesus is trying to teach everybody. So they do this for however long it takes them to do it. They lower their friend in front of Jesus. And without saying anything, Jesus says to the young man, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now what's interesting there, he didn't say, when that young man gave an impassionate, speech about how sorry he was and how he needed forgiveness. He fell on his knees and prayed this prayer. No, it didn't even say when Jesus saw the young man's faith, he said, son, your sins are forgiven. It says when Jesus saw their faith, the faith of his buddies, then he said to the young man, "Your your sins are forgiven. We'll come back to that in a minute. Now, as you can imagine in the room at that moment, there's different people and they're all thinking different things. And You got the friends who might be thinking, hey, Jesus, that's great and all. Thank thank you for giving his sins, but he's still paralyzed. We didn't do all this so you could forgive his sins, right? What about that? You've got some other guys, and this is what they're thinking in verse six. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he says something to them, and I'll come back there in a second. Basically, what's happened is you've got the religious leaders of the day. We call them Pharisees and Sadducees. You've probably heard those terms before. They're like in the front row because they want to hear what Jesus has to say because their goal is to find something and trip him up with it. Because they're not too excited about this Jesus character. He's taking away their popularity, he's taking away their fame. And they're just gonna see, can he say something wrong that we can catch him on? And bingo, he says something horribly wrong. And what he does is he claims to forgive the sins of somebody. And the reason why that's horribly wrong is because they know, like everybody else there, that only God can forgive sins. And if you are someone who's claiming you can forgive someone's sins, that you are claiming yourself to be God, and that's utter blasphemy. And they're like, gotcha. This is exactly what we hope to hear You have just blasphemed. And he knows they're thinking this. And he says to them, starting in verse 8, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. And this amazed everyone. And they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. So, what Jesus said was this I know what you guys are thinking. I know you guys are thinking I just blasphemed. I know up here on the roof you guys are mad because I didn't heal your buddy. But which is easier for me to do? Is it easier for me to forgive somebody's sins that only God can do? Or is it easier for me to help them not be paralyzed anymore and get rid of their lameness? We all know that this one's harder, but I said this one so you guys can know this is more important. This is what this young man needed more than anything, even though you think he needed the physical healing. But to prove to you I can do both, I am also gonna physically heal him. And he turns to the young man which is an example to everybody else that he can also forgive sins, and he says, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Now, what's interesting to note about this is, what does the young man do? Does the paralytic sit there on the map and be like, you know what, Jesus, this is a great plan, but this could be really embarrassing for me. For the thousandth time in my life, I could be utterly humiliated in front of all these people if I actually take a step of risk and step, try to step off this mat and stand up? What if it doesn't work? Like every other fortune teller and magician that has come before you, I can try this and I can be utterly humiliated. Or does he say to him, you know, Jesus has a great plan, but I've got a couple questions that are really important to me that I'd like answered before I do this because really just, I really just don't know about these questions. They've always bothered me, and I really don't want to make a decision or do anything until you answer these questions. Jesus doesn't, he does, the man man doesn't do any of that. He openly, readily, without question, just does exactly what Jesus says. And he stands up, picks up his mat, and walks out. Right? Now, I don't know about you guys, when I read passages like this in the Bible... One of the hard things is, it's not a passage like Paul's passage where it says, don't drink, love your family, give money to the poor. It's not specific about what we're supposed to do and how we can apply it to our lives. So a trick that you can always use when you study a passage like this, that you want to know, how can I apply this to my life, is ask the question, what can I learn from the different characters in this passage, in this story? And so let's just ask a couple questions. What can we learn from Jesus? What we can learn from Jesus is this. Jesus never heals without faith being involved. Jesus never heals without faith being involved. And you know what? He wants to heal more than just our sins. Yes, he came and sacrificed himself on the cross so that our sins would be paid for and we'd have the opportunity to be healed. Yes, he did that. And that is utmost importance to him that we understand that. But he also wants to, just like he's exampled in this story, to heal our physical infirmities. He wants to heal us mentally. He wants to heal us emotionally. He wants to bring healing to each and every one of us. Many of us in this room this morning probably need healing in one of these ways. Jesus wants to bring healing, but healing never happens without faith being involved. Second thing, what can we learn from the paralytic? What can we learn from the paralyzed man? We can learn this. Exactly what I just said a few minutes ago. The paralyzed man openly, without question, he accepted Jesus' healing, and he stood up, and he just walked, right? He accepted Jesus' healing openly, unlike most of us who want so bad to have so many questions answered before we're willing to accept Jesus' healing have so many things that catch us up. It was so simple to him. He was paralyzed. He needed help. And he was willing to accept the healing. Sometimes we, as followers of Christ, or sometimes we, as human beings who need to follow Christ, need to make it that simple and quit making it so complex. Just simply accept the healing that Jesus has for you. Some of you might need to be healed from some things this morning. I don't know. Maybe you have yet to be healed spiritually and your sins have yet to be forgiven. You have yet to place your faith and to say, Hey, Jesus, I know what you did for me on the cross. I would love to accept that for myself. Thank you for paying the price for my sins. I don't know. Some of you might have some physical infirmities that you would love to have healed, some of you, emotional abuse or other emotional stuff you got going on. I encourage you and pray and hope that you would take the opportunity when we're done here this morning there'll be folks in the prayer room and they would love to pray for you for any of these things i think the challenge for you this morning if that's you and that's the application you needed to learn from is can i just accept it openly and with faith and say okay jesus i need your healing the third group of people is the friends what can we learn from the friends the friends there's two things i want to learn from the friends is one They also made it simple. The friends knew, all they knew was that Jesus could help their buddy. Jesus could do something. I don't know what he's going to do. I don't know what it's going to look like. I can't control the environment once they get there. All I know is Jesus can do something, and so I have got to figure out how to get my buddy in front of Jesus so that Jesus can do what he does. So many of us are so worried sometimes, right, that we don't invite somebody to something because what happens if we invite them and they get there and it's not good? It'll be a turn off. Quit worrying about, just get them there. Get them in front of Jesus. So I ask these kind of three questions to challenge you guys. And myself this morning is this. The friends learned that they were willing to do whatever it took to get creative and think outside the box, and to sacrifice in order to get their friend in front of Jesus. Are you willing to do whatever it takes to get your friend and loved ones and people that you know on a regular basis in front of Jesus? You know, I told you that for a few years I worked with college students all across the country uh, for a number of years. And one of the campuses I worked at was University of San Diego. And I worked with a gal there who was in a sorority house, and she wanted to figure out a way to reach her sorority sisters for Christ. And so she got all excited about starting a Bible study in her sorority. So she went through all the training that we give and did everything exactly right, gave the announcements, put the flyers up, did the invitations, stood up in chapter, told everybody we're having Bible study on Tuesday. She showed up for Bible study, zero people. Zero other girls showed up. Did the same thing the next week, zero did the same thing for the entire semester and no one ever showed up. Are you willing to do whatever it takes to get your friends in front of Jesus? Second, are you willing to get creative and think outside the box? One of our very own, a number of years ago, became moved and passionate for a group of people that he knew would never darken the doors of this church or any other church in town. And so therefore he he started a ministry which we all are familiar with called pub theology because he knew that maybe there was a way to get creative, to think outside the box. You don't have to go through the front door always. Maybe sometimes you gotta climb up the staircase and dig through the roof to get people that you know and love in front of Jesus. And he was willing to do that. Thirdly, are you willing to sacrifice in order to get people in front of Jesus? It might be time It might be money. It might be popularity. It might be your career. It might be friend or family relationships. You might tick somebody off. Who knows what it is? You know, one of my favorite teachers in high school was a teacher by the name of Mrs. Mellencamp. Uh, Mrs. Mellencamp was the best English teacher at Greenwood High School, but yet she did not work with the best students. I never got to have her to teach her. Luckily, I was one of the students that we were in. I was in classes like you would call now AP or honors or whatever. And so I never got to have Mrs. Mellencamp in class. But myself, like any other student in school, was invited every Friday morning before school started to come to Mrs. Mellencamp's class to sit down. And she would have these little heart post-it notes. And she would write out a verse. And she would pray for you individually before school started. Right? And so I got to experience that. Now, Mrs. Mellencamp was willing to take the risk that that meant a public school system was not very happy about how open she was with her faith. They didn't fire her because they knew that would create an outroar and an uprage in a community that was still pretty church-based. But what they could do was little by little remove things that everybody else in her career, in her industry, would strive for and they would just continue to give her classes that no one else wanted, which she didn't care because she loved those kids as well too. Are you willing to take risks of whatever it is in your life to get people, to sacrifice, to get them in front of Jesus? Eric, you guys can come up now. So I just want to leave you with this, is what creatively, what practically can you do this week, to get somebody in front of Jesus? Maybe it's this weekend. Maybe it's next week at the 4th of July fireworks. Maybe it's this month. I don't know what it is. How can you think outside the box to find ways to get people in your life who need healing in front of Jesus so Jesus can do what he does? Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you so much For the opportunity to share what you've placed on my heart this morning more so i thank you that you are a god of healing and you want to heal us you want to heal us physically mentally emotionally and most of all spiritually i thank you for doing that in my life many many times over and in so many that i know and lord jesus i just pray for everyone in this room this morning That they would take the challenge that this story gives us, the challenge of the friends, and to be willing to do whatever it takes to get their friends in front of Jesus. We love you, Lord, in your name. Amen.